Welcome to And The Writer Is with Ross Golan. There are millions of singers, thousands of artists, and only 40 songs per genre at a time. These are the stories of the hottest creatives, the most venerable legends, artists, songwriters, executives, and more. Come join our Discord, follow our socials, and share your music with the And The Writer Is community. We'll see you all there, and now, here's this week's episode. Hey, what's up? It's Paige McDonald, and this is your weekly music industry update. Steve Lacey is set to make his Saturday Night Live debut as a musical guest. The Mechanical Licensing Collective has distributed nearly $700 million in blanket royalties to its members in the year and a half since launching full operations. Apple is increasing the pricing for Apple TV+, Apple One, and Apple Music worldwide. Adidas has terminated their Kanye West partnership and the talent agency CAA has dropped him as a client. Taylor Swift set a new record in China after her latest album Midnight's became the priciest digital album sold in the Chinese market at 35 yuan. Jimmy Iovine and Phineas have joined the $15 million funding round for the immersive content firm Hume. Despite maintaining its lead in the global music streaming market, Spotify says that it will consider raising its prices in the U.S. following recent moves by Apple Music and YouTube. The hacker who stole Ed Sheeran's unreleased music to sell for crypto has gotten an 18-month jail term in the U.K. InGrooves has won the third patent for AI tech to predict TikTok trends that can translate into upticks in streams. Global songwriter royalty collections topped $10 billion in 2021, but we're still below pre-pandemic levels. Shawnee Corbett-Rice has been promoted to SVP of Marketing for Warner Records. David Gorman has been named Creative Director at Acceleration Music. Russell Dickerson has signed a worldwide publishing deal with Concord Music Publishing. The rising songwriter Mika Carpenter has signed with Boom Music Group. Jacob Packworth has signed a publishing deal with Costweaver's Go Island Sound and Boom Music Group with exclusive administration by Warner Chapel. Sony Music Publishing UK has signed Baby Queen. Conrad Sewell is the latest addition to the Mushroom Management roster. A big thank you to Charlotte Isidore of Mega House for gathering today's news. Now stay tuned for this week's episode of And The Writer Is. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. This episode's A-list songwriter and producer defines some of the biggest multi-platinum hits for some of alt-rock's and pop's biggest artists. In fact, he was the number one songwriter on the Billboard Rock Songwriters chart for a consecutive nine weeks. Over 7 billion streams will do that. Not to mention, he was chosen to be on Variety's Hitmakers list, as well as being named Rolling Stone's Hot List Producer of the year. All the way from the couch next to me, this writer has carved his own lane in a very busy industry. 
And the writer is Sam Hollander. Hey. What a glowing intro, man. Dude, this is this is uh, uh, you know it's one of the first uh, interviews we've actually done in person after quarantine, which I don't know. Like I know this is audio, but th- that's the truth. So this is exciting. You're kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel on this one, but you know, yeah, no let's one else get would into do it. it. So yeah, it's I get like, it. um, <laughs> alright. Uh, okay, so uh, factually, uh, you don't live in Los Angeles, and yet we're here in a in a in a place together. So. I am on a semester at sea from Los Angeles. <laughs> um, I uh, I lived here for the last decade, and then uh, we, my family, we made a break back to New York, and which is the motherland, and we've been there uh, for the last year. And I'm sure we will uh, we will resume life here at some point, but it was time for a little break. Uh, my kid wanted to attend my alma mater, my uh, my high school. What high school is that? That'd be Fox Lane High School mm-hmm. in uh, Bedford, New York. Why would you? Um, want- famous alum would be John Schneider from Dukes of Hazard. Oh, cool. Uh, Kimya Dawson from the Moldy Peaches. Uh-huh. Um, Marissa Winokur, who lived right around the corner here, I believe. Um, Susan Day from the Partridge Family. Oh, there you go. Thanks, man. Um, and that's why, obviously. The, so you're you know, probably on the Hall of Fame, like uh, that they have on the somewhere in the high school. Did they have something like that? Ross, it's funny. I was at homecoming <laughs> this year, and uh, Coach Murgart, who's the athletic director, I petitioned for some sort of Hall of Fame status as uh, a JV wide receiver with <laughs> nine drops and two receptions. And um, I quit every other sport, and I gave him an impassioned plea. He said, there's a special Hall of Fame for guys like you. <laughs> just might not be in this corridor. So It's so funny because you know. my wife makes fun of me because I would say uh, uh, I talked about playing football in the summer in, in high school, and she was like, well, there's the first problem and the first tell that you didn't play football because football's not in the summer. I was like, well, I mean, I played one year and it was, uh, anyway, I really did only play one year and this is this conversation is getting off to a weird the mo- place. The movie ends bad. Um, yeah, exactly. Nice. So you grew up, uh, you grew up there. Uh, your tell me a little bit about your childhood. Like, your, are your parents musicians? Uh, my not, parents right? uh, were artists. So, my dad was a modern dancer with uh, Jose Limon troupe in the fifties, and then he uh, became an architect with Philip Johnson and uh, John Johansson, a bunch of the modernists, and eventually was a professor at Pratt for the rest of his life until he passed. And my mom, uh, my mom was badass, man, and she was a uh, she was an interior designer and a collector and of uh, sort of Victorian era furniture. And she had sort of, she assembled, like cobbled together this incredible collection. And she partnered with a cat named Jed Johnson in the seventies in the city. And they had a firm, uh, interiors firm. And Jed was Andy Warhol's boyfriend. So um, during the seventies, they did Andy's apartment. They did Yves Saint Laurent. They did Mick Jagger. They did all this badass shit. And I, uh, it's funny because, uh, Ross, I just completed my book. That would be a 21 hit wonder flopping my way to the charts on, uh, Ben Bella books, Matt Holt books. And, uh, that released it. Can I, can I do that again? Can you plug that? Can I say that again? Can you edit that one thing? Yeah. Uh, that would be 2100. I can't even speak this morning. 
21 hit wonder flopping my way to the top of the charts on Matt Holt Ben Bella books released November 1st 2022 in a store near you I want to announce that right here on your show I came on the air to do that here this is our moment to do it but the reason I say that is because the book begins it's a memoir but I frame the beginning of it as you know, the moment when Andy Warhol was indeed my babysitter as a little kid. And he used to babysit me as a little kid when my mom would go out uh, with Jed and they would go out, you know, and shopping and, you know, buying things on the, you know, on the weekends. My mom would drop me off at Andy's apartment and I'd sit with Andy and his maids and, you know, he'd kick it with a snotty-nosed little kid who he had no interest in. And it was uh, it was a formation of uh, something in my brain because it was like it was an exposure to a strange sort of celebrity for a little dude. And, you know, I saw his name in the post. And I knew his picture. But that opening um, sort of led to the synapses sort of connecting. And suddenly, you know, I knew I wanted to be around this in some capacity. And music was the only thing that spoke to me. So as a little kid... That was uh, my path, and I was in this town, and, you know, I was a music nerd, I was a collector, and, you know, I, uh, I had no idea how I'd ever access the industry. It wasn't even a reality. I just felt I was a kid with spent every weekend at flea markets buying 10-cent records and sort of uh, accumulating like a real war chest, and um, I'd study the records like baseball cards, and I'd look and see who the writers were and who the producers were, and I just tried to, you know... I just wanted to learn, you know, and I had like a real thirst for it. And that's how I grew up. I was basically, like I said, I was a shitty football player who loved music. Did you try painting or did you try that kind of art? No, you know, it's funny. I don't have a great eye, man. Like visually, I'm pretty terrible. So I don't think anyone would need to see that. I, I just envision. Do you see what finger, I, I just envision finger painting while you're at Andy Warhol's because you're this not nosed kid who's sitting there, and he's probably being like, "How do I entertain this kid?" And you're probably doing, you know, well, as, let me show you how to how to as you'll dip learn my hand as you learn when you make it through page three of my book. Um, <laughs> what you will learn is, I. Uh, I had an aversion to tissues when I was a little boy. <laughs> so I had issues. When I say snot-nosed kid, I actually had a lot of phlegm. And um, I was known for sort of wiping my boogers on my sleeves, which wasn't really that cool. And what happened was the day at Andy's, that first time, um, uh, there were no tissues available, and my arms were completely coated, and I didn't know what to do. So I began rubbing my nose boogies under his table. And that's sort of frames my life and all the yeah, all the exactly. downfalls and grifts that would happen after. Sort of, it set me up for how I landed in this room. Wow, um, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> that's, um, that's crazy, though. I mean, I think a lot of people who are raised in major cities come across some famous people, but not necessarily you know, maybe the number one of their field as as a babysitter. So I can imagine that shaping at least a level of excellence. You know, I think if, you're, if your mom obviously was very talented at what she did too. So you, you must have been around, um, you know, I, th- I think if you have parents like that, even if they're not musicians, 
the aspirations you end up having as a musician still are like, well, I need to create at the level of completeness and the quality of this kind of art. You know, it does. You don't have to do the same art, but to still recognize the level of excellence that you need to to compete. Well, my mom and dad really raised the bar. In all fairness, like they were. Um, Aesthetically, they were both so tight at what they did, man. Mm-hmm. Like, and they were perfectionists, and um, art was everything in our house. And so, I agree with you. I, I would say the bar was very high, and just for creating, you know. And it's funny because I remember bringing my mom my first demos, and the appalled look in her face, you know, when she heard how terrible I was. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I have a long way to go, man. You well, know? W- so. w- before that, you have to play an instrument. I mean. Your parents were probably... Did you have brothers and sisters? Were you a, being encouraged to play I, music by I, them? I have a brother, and my brother was um, was very, very helpful in my uh, development because my brother, you know, when we grew up, you know, he grew up listening to all this, like, shit-kicker southern rock stuff and all this, like, ridiculous, you know, it was like Boston mm-hmm. and all these sort of 70s... Uh, Bands, and then he went off to Boston University, and he, I believe, he roomed with the college DJ that first semester, mm. and he came back, and suddenly, I, you know, we we have a six-year differential, and he came back, and suddenly he had these crates that were magical, and it was, you know, it was early Smith singles, and you know, it was, uh, you know, REM, the you know, Chronic Town and Murmur, and you know, um, you know, Let's Active, and just a, a million, you know, bands from that era. And so I had an advantage, man. I was exposed to so yeah. much stuff. And I would say my brother really like opened, you know, Pandora's box, man, because it was just my head exploded. And then from then on, that's all I did was just listen to music. You know? So what makes you create music? There's a difference between somebody who is a fan of it versus going. How do you go from that to creating a demo? What what happened between oh, that time? Ross, so many things happened. Um, I, uh, bounced around colleges. Uh-huh. I, I visited many of them, you know, so it was sort of a dwindling proposition. So I checked out college for a bit. Didn't really work out for me. I struggled. Um, but I, I, you know, Did I was always struggle because of, uh, you know, because of why? Well, I mean, if you're watching my brain work right now, it's pretty obvious that, you know, I will eventually land the plane on everything, but I tend to take crazy detours. If this was a direct flight between Burbank and Las Vegas, I've just taken you to the Mojave Desert yeah, right, right. and I made my way back down. So, you're flying Delta. Yeah, so, <laughs> <laughs> so when I grew up, you know, man, I was like the definitive ADHD kid. I was all over the place. And this is in the 80s, man, so they didn't really know what that was. So that was deemed colossal fuck up. You know what I mean? And so we sent me to therapists and just trying to figure out. My parents, mm-hmm. you know, my parents were both Ivy League. And I graduated at the bottom of my high school. And they really didn't understand where where the train had derailed. And I think the one thing that they under they noticed about me is I was lyrical, sort of. I sort of had a lot of content, you know, I was like an early content provider. And uh so I was always just sort of, you know, I, I spewing poetry and just, you know, you know, my version of what, you know, spoken word would have been if I was doing, you know, my Gil Scott Heron or The Last Poets, but in the suburbs and what that would read like, you know. And so they they knew there was something there, but it was very hard to uh, to really uh, 
you know, pigeonhole where it would land. And so what I did is uh, I, got to, I got to Manhattan at 18 um, from Westchester, and uh, I started uh, messing around with uh, just recording, early primitive recording. I found a studio on 111th Street. A guy named Jimmy Musson had a room, and it was a little MIDI room, and it was cheap. And he was this lovely guy who would give me lessons and just teach me sort of the notion of sampling. And for me, that's when my head exploded because I'm this flea market kid with thousands of records. And what I realized was, you know, I'd take these little shitty like 45s and, you know, obscure records, I'd loop them up and then I would try to do my version of a top line. And sometimes it was sort of singing and sometimes it was rapping. And I was just constantly trying to fuse all these cultures because at the end of the day, you know, I, um, I was always like this big musical bowl of gumbo in my head at a time when that was less of a thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, you guys are younger than me and your generation, um, you know, which I deem the iPod generation, hmm. like you guys were listening to tons of different shit and it was cool. When I was growing up and I was like an unabashed Debbie Gibson fan who loved Husker Du, that was like sort of off the rails, man. You know what I mean? Like that yeah. wasn't how it worked. I always wanted to take my inner jukebox, fuse it together, and then create a voice out of that. And it took me, you know, many, many years to find that voice. When you said that you played the demo for your mom, mom yeah. what was the song that you played? Oh, man. That's a heck of a question, Ross. You know... That song, the first thing I believe I ever played her when she believed, when she when she started to see that something was happening is I was signed to a production deal at 18 to uh, Mick Murphy and David Frank, who were known as The System back then. They had come off a massive hit, Don't Disturb This Groove, great writer-producers in the 80s of like funk stuff, electro-funk. And they picked me up. They gave me a production deal at 18. And uh, the first thing I ever did for him was I did a, uh, a rap on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles theme, 1989. And uh, as you'll learn in my book, 21 Hit Wonder, Flopping My Way to the <laughs> Top of the Charts, Matt Holt, Ben Bella Books, what you will learn is um, that was the most pivotal moment of my youth where I really... You know, if we were to take this to a sports analogy, I spiked the ball on the five-yard line. So I recorded this rap. I played it for my mom. I was like, guess what, man? I'm in this movie. She's like, that's amazing. It was a lock. Everything happened. It was done, you know? So I went back home and told everyone I'd ever met, yeah. you know, yeah, man, I might not be academic. I might be trudging through my third university in a year and a half. But, you know, the good news is... I am the rapper on the Tur Ninja Turtles theme of this big movie that's about to come out. The snipes were all over Broadway. Everywhere you looked, there were these magical snipes. And I was just like, you know, using it with girls. Anything I could for real estate. This was going to be life-altering. And uh, the cassette arrives at the studio, and it's standing on the corner, and I rip it open. And my name isn't on it, man, you know? And I thought, that's weird. And we go to my segment of the Teenage Ninja Turtles theme, and there's 16 bars where my hot 16 is no longer there. It's been replaced by a DJ scratching. Radical. Totally awesome. Wiki, 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 wiki. Awesome. Radical. That's all I remember from the Teenage Mutant you know. So that's all I got for you. But it was the moment where I realized this business was brutal. And uh, 
no shade on those guys, man, David Frank and McMurphy. That was not their fault. It, it just, it's the way the game works. And, but that was the eye opener. But I would say you could see my mom hearing the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles theme probably thought that we needed to get me back into school quickly. Want to know what it takes to make a million bucks? Check out My First Million. Every week we dive into different business opportunities and explain how to pounce on them. From one-man online operations to brick-and-mortar strategies, we cover it all. So whether it's your first million followers or dollars, start getting inspired with My First Million wherever you get your podcasts. I know, again, this is your story and not mine, but... Uh, in the spirit of telling some random music industry stories, I was in a similar place where I'd had like I had had songs, a, a lot of songs out of pretty successful at at really good album tracks, you know, and um, maybe a couple singles there here or there, but none of them really reacted. And I I'm down the hall, and uh, and these guys come in, they're like, hey, can you come and help Flowrider write this? the bridge to this song. So I walk in and it's Avicii's track with Good Feeling, the you know, the what later became one of Florida's biggest songs. And the verses were written, but the bridge wasn't. So we're like, yeah, let's write it. So we write the bridge and we're stoked. I mean this song is like Florida has a lot of hits. This is gonna be a a big move. And um you know, we do splits and all this stuff. I'm so stoked. And then it turns out Avicii sold the track to Universal Music. So they had to reproduce the track, but they couldn't buy the sample because the sample wasn't theirs. So Dr. Luke came in, did the redid the track, and he signed this new kid, Circuit, who then did the bridge and did this dubstep bridge and there were no dubstep anything at the time at radio and they just cut the bridge and they cut my part out and the song is still something where you just hear all the time like you hear marching bands play you hear all the time and and that was supposed to be my first number one song and uh it it was not my first number one song for anyone out there who's you know just getting into this business uh, i want to lead by saying it is the greatest life right it's amazing it's changed you know um it's it's changed it's altered my perception of what possibilities were it's it's magical flip side is it's horrific and (laughs) you will you will go through some some of the most sort of uh skull fuckingly awful (laughs) moments of your life and you have to have a stick-to-itiveness that um, you just have to... I, I've always said, you know, this business, at least for the first 14 years of my career, was akin to me waking up every morning in Washington Square by the arches, waking up, going for a gingerly stroll and getting hit by a cab every day of the week. <laughs> where you just know it's sort of like, you know, it's like the Groundhog Day moment with Phil Connors. Phil, Phil Connors. Yeah. You, know? you just know that you're about to get hit by that cab again and there's nothing you can do. You're going to get laid out and you got to get up and you got to go write a song. Yeah. And that's what this business is. Totally. Yeah. So you meet Carol King. This is years after that. Like if you're yeah, talking yeah, about there's a lot you know, of failing in a, there, man. There's, there's a lot of failing that happens. On. I guess okay. 
so let me just, I mean, uh, let me paraphrase it very quickly. Sure. There's like a decade of torture. I got signed. And as, you were in in Manhattan. I'm in Manhattan the whole time. I get signed as an artist. I have a record deal. Um, what uh, kind of music was it? It was like sort of alternative hip hop y sort of stuff. I I would say that's the I use the word alternative because you can get away with murder with the word alternative, right? <laughs> like alternative says, don't judge me. You know, what I mean, I'm kind of quirky and weird, so let's just go with that. But it was pretty terrible. But, but I, during the '90s, this is a, you know, grunge is everything. This is '91, man. This is yeah, early. So, I got signed young, so so if it's '91 and you're 20, 21 years old or something yep, like that, 20 years old. You know, so. you've got like. Nirvana's you know, Nirvana just, just comes out that year yeah. or whatever it is. My guess is that you, know, sh- you know what your guess is. What? My shit didn't sound like Nirvana. So <laughs> well, that's what I was gonna say. What do you do when 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 grunge music. becomes so big for the next five years? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what happens. You you make a record. You um, you know, uh, the powers that be gave me a uh, a record deal at twenty. I just turned twenty, twenty one, and I was allowed to produce my own record, and. The one thing people shouldn't do is produce their own first record. Yeah. You know, it just says just and you know, and it's funny because Trackmasters were a huge thing back then, and they wanted to produce the record. Bob Power, the great Bob Power, who you know um, produced Erica Badu's on and on, and mixed all those Tribe records and those Daylight records. He produced a song on my demo, Gratis, because he like loved what I was doing. He was awesome, and all these guys who really could have elevated my craft, but. I just was such a control freak at that age, you know, I had like such a specific vision, so I had to produce my record. And of course, I just made this just heaping piece of shit. And so I make this record. Do you say that, are you saying that in jest or is it actually terrible? Oh no, it's like a heaping piece of shit. When you listen to it now, are you proud of it? I don't listen to it. When was the last time you listened to it? I don't know. Not not in the millennium. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'll tell you one thing. I did, uh, but I learned how to navigate myself in the studio, which was crucial. And so that was basically getting paid to have an education on how to conduct myself in a room with people. And I thought that was huge. Was that deal enough to pay for rent? Yeah, it was. It was a great deal. Um, It was more than rent. I actually, uh, I mean, these were different days, but I was able to buy an apartment. I bought an apartment on... um, uh, with 17th and 7th. It's a studio apartment in a building, and I paid 37K <laughs> for a studio apartment with a doorman with a crank elevator, like old Damn. school. And I flipped that. And the funny thing is, man, there's a cat named Eric Wong, who's a big, you know, huge marketing guy in the business. He actually lives in that apartment now. He combined it with another apartment. Five owners later, he lives in the apartment wow. that I first lived in. But I uh, no, it was amazing. It was a it was a great experience. But what happened at the end of that is after I got dropped, um, very so my record came out, sold five copies, a little video, and it was over. And then when it ended, I immediately began remixing, and I was just doing anything I could to stay in the business. So I remixed. I got an SP12 drum machine, made beats. I did that. I was doing uh, industrials, commercials, and um, you know uh, the. The, the, I guess the pinnacle moment was when I uh, did drum programming on a kid's bop record. Hmm. So that's when I thought the, that I was about to get a job. I thought it was over. Um, it was a tough year. And right around that time, that's right around the time I met Carol King. And I met Carol King because, you know, in all the years of futility in my 20s, my manager, Brett Descend, who I've been with the same manager for 22 years, um, Brett... You know, when we first hooked up, he said, look, man, you 
develop acts, I'll get them deals. So we would put together groups, casting, village voice ads, and put together these things. I was working with a guy named Dave Schomer, um, really talented cat from Chicago. And we were making these records, and we were getting kids signed, and we were getting these big deals, and every single record got shelved. And this went on for years, man. So we were truly the biggest fucking losers in America. Everything we touched would get shelved. So you'd bring a kid in, you say, hey, man, I, if we do this demo, we write these songs, I promise you, you're going to get a record deal. Now, I never could promise yeah. that it would get released, but they would get a deal, so it was something, right? But that's what I did for years. What happened was one of the projects that got shelved was a girl named Tarsha Vega. She was an MC from the Bronx, and I was uh, writing her rhymes. And what happened was uh, Brian Maloof, okay. great A&R and producer, uh, knew her manager at the time, Lorna, and Carol got wind of it. Carol flipped on it, came down to the studio to meet the girl, sits across from her, is like, hey, I love your wordplay. I love your lyrics. And thank God for this. You know, Tarsha was this, she was this wonderful girl. And she just turned and she said, it's him. Yeah. And Carol looked at me sort of puzzled. And I was like, it's me. <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's me, Greg. <laughs> uh, so from that point on, man, we spent a lot of time together. And we ended up... Uh, we ended up writing um, the, her single and producing it, the, the last record she ever put out, Love Makes the World in 2000. And um, it was a Gap commercial, and it was badass. And she, uh, she was the greatest, le- you know, she was the greatest teacher I ever had in this business because she, the humility and the, um, the wisdom and just everything about her, you know, she was so nurturing and caring and just straight with no jive ass shit. She was just lovely. And so she set the bar. But during that time, I'm like, you know, she, she connects me to Paul Williams, you know, uh, outside of that, I'm hanging out with Nile Rogers. Like I'm getting blessed by the greats, but I can't write with anyone my own age because like you said, now Nirvana's come into play and, you know, self-contained bands are a thing. And my goal was really, I just wanted to kind of write with bands and singer-songwriters. That's really what I wanted to do. And When did you decide that? Because you don't know that until someone shows you that that's a possibility. You know, I mean, I love disco music, right? Like classic disco. But classic disco died. It morphs into, you know, electro and then house. And I never really felt house to the same extent. Rock was like, you know, hip-hop, I loved hip-hop, but obviously I wasn't an MC, and that wasn't going to happen. But I just loved, I loved the spirit of it, and I loved the wordplay. Rock was the one thing that I could sort of um, articulate. I felt like every era of rock, there were things that I really connected with. And also, there was like a through line in rock where there were cats in the room who were the writers who collaborated, man. It wasn't like Brill Building, you know, to the same extent, but still there were writers. I think there's co-writers on... Use Your Illusion, and there's writers on, you know, the you know Eagles records, co-writers, Jack Temptions writing on those Eagle records, writing hits with those guys. Like, they were, they, there was a moment when it was totally acceptable yeah. to collaborate, but what happens is when grunge comes in, the least cool thing in the world is the other guy in the room, yeah. you know? And that's when I come of age, so I'm fucked. So all I really want to do is write with cats, but I have absolute zero access, and... You know, man, it, uh, that, that's why my 20s were such a shit show because they're really, I didn't see the playing field. And it's funny, I was thinking this morning as I came over here about Gen X writers, right, of a certain age. 
there aren't that many Gen X writers left, you know? And I do believe a lot of that had to do with the fact that we came up in an era that was impenetrable in many ways, you know, where it wasn't a great pop wave. The pop wave happens a little later, right, with all the boy band stuff in the late 90s. But early 90s, late 80s, all the way to like 97, it's like, you know, those records are really hard to access, man, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it was a, it was a dire time. Ross, Ross, I, I edited ringtones for a while. That was a job. So <laughs> I edited ringtones, but I didn't edit any kind of ringtone. I was getting paid, I forgot what the sum was. I want to say it was like 35 maybe $50, something like that per ringtone to edit jam band ring, ringtones. Now, do you know what it's like to edit a jam band ringtone? Can you imagine <laughs> what that is? That's taking 25 minutes of content down to like a 15-second differential. That's a lot of chopping and pasting. And there were some gruesome years, brother. So you understand why I'm so giddy being here with you fellas. But so. when you, you know... Uh, the industry, I, I think that most people peak, not peak, most people really break in the industry in their 30s. Yeah. I think that it's a myth that like, you, you see these people in their teens and 20s that are killing it. And in reality, those are f very f far and few between most of the people who make moves as songwriters and producers, in my experience, like their best years are late twenties through thirties and forties. Even yeah. you know, it's not necessarily, um, you know, it's it's not really as young. It's sort of a young person's game, but if it's really about sticking through those times, Which, like you know, to to get to the point where your skill set is in vogue. Well, I mean. I look at the icons of hip hop and I look at, you know, at this moment for as many MCs there are out there who, you know, dominate Spotify. If I look at like the icons in my yeah. head at this moment, it's still Jay and yeah. it's still Kanye and it's still Diddy to some extent. You know, he obviously he rules the universe and, you know, all these guys, Nas, they're all my age, man. You know what I mean? And it's wisdom. What happens is there comes a moment, and I agree with you completely. I felt like it was in my 30s. There was a moment where the, the light bulb got brighter, and I began to hear it. And I think I had a sense of self, man. You know, you spend your 20s, it's a lot of chasing, right? You're chasing whatever the thing is, and you're just trying to get in. You're just trying to get in. You want to be in this game, right? You want to write songs. You want to experience sort of, uh, uh, you know, if you're a pop writer, you want to experience that feeling of something entering the zeitgeist. And what happens is you get in your 30s, and you sort of become a human, man. Maybe you have kids. Maybe, you know, there are just things that happen that frame it. For me, having a kid was huge because I really felt I was on the creative clock. I felt like, you know... I'm going to be a dad now, man. This is this whole other window. I can't stay out all night and like, you know, doing this thing and like chasing it. I got to, there's windows. And like you said, Ross, we're both early morning guys. And so I became an early morning guy, right? So every morning I had to go harder than ever. And I felt like when I had that on my back, when I had this, my, my kid's energy sort of fueling me, I just got better. Like I just felt like I really dialed in who I was and I knew what I could bring to a room every day. That was it. And some of it's that choice where, um, your skill set's good enough to keep things going, but at some point, you know, some people are, we know the prodigies again, but a lot of times the people who break in the business are, are it's when they have this mental shift of, 
yeah, I know that there's a level that I haven't really tapped into, and either I'm going for it or I'm not. That's but right. it was it was when I realized like I wasn't the cute kid anymore. <laughs> like I wasn't gonna just get a. Re- you have to actually do the work to show the to to prove that that potential is real. It's true. You know, you have to you have to realize some of that potential, which means you have to put in that work. You have to change your mindset to realize, oh, you know, no, I can beat this. I can beat this. I can beat this. Well, and good, be your own worst critic. Well, the good thing for me is I was never the cute kid, so the deck was <laughs> no, sort of stacked were, against me no, early on. But you were the kid yeah. who had the record deal. Who produces their own record deal. That is the mistake that you're talking about yes, where yes. like you needed somebody to say you can beat that. You can beat that yes. versus me being like I'm the shit and everything I do is so good that I don't even need to edit this. Well, I also I came of age at a time when, you know, I was in the I was in these village and you know, I was very lucky with the crew that I had surrounded myself with. And obviously that, how did I surround myself? Well, I was out seven nights a week hustling. So I was networking every single night. I'd go to any industry showcase. If I had a friend who was a secretary or entry-level A&R at a label, you know, I'd pound them till they get me invites to showcases. I would do anything just to be seen and just like, so people sort of recognize that at least I was a presence and I existed. And I would, you know, stand on the street outside the Columbia Records building, Black Rock on 50th, and I'd stand out there with cassettes. I'd memorized all the faces from Billboard. There's a billboard on 22nd and 6th Avenue. I'm sorry, there's a billboard. There's a Barnes & Noble on 22nd and 6th Avenue. And I'd read the Billboard magazines for free. I'd study the photos and of all the A&R guys in the golden platinum presentation pictures. And so I remember their face and say, hey, that's Don DeVito, you know, that's the, you know, Mitchell Cohen. And I'd stand out and I'd accost these guys the way dudes like Acosti on Hollywood Boulevard with their CD. But I would come into it knowing who they were, introduce myself, say, I've seen them in the magazine, I have a demo. And, you know, it's like there is a gear you have to hit. If you want to be in this, you know, this is everything. This is not a business you limp into, you know? Yeah. I think like uh, that gets lost on people sometimes. I do believe in my heart that every living American is capable of one hit, but I don't believe every American's capable of multiple hits. That takes the hustle yeah. and the drive, and that's the other gear that you have to get to, and then you can do it. Well, let's go to that first hit. Well, every, you want to you wanna get something? <laughs> well, you jump. I don't want to. I don't want to cut you off. Well, no, no, no. But isn't I mean, it your so first? It's going to be like some glowing introduction. Let's go. Exactly. Like, yeah. No, but we we go from you know, like you said, you you were working with the Carol Kings of the world and and meeting Paul Williams and meeting Nile Rogers and you're in with those people and through the beginning of the two thousands, like let me tell you how I hit it. Yeah, please. I'm in the East Village and I've accumulated like a pretty cool crew. All right. And it's a crew of uh, songwriters, managers, and film guys, right? We had all these cool cats. Like, it was a really interesting bunch, and no one had really blown up. We had a guy named J.J. Abrams we used to hang out mm. with, and he, uh, he was our first friend who ever got a TV show. He had a show called Felicity. So we all went to Odeon and had a little party to celebrate the night he got, you know, greenlit from the WB who got his first show, right? We had Morgan Spurlock. I wrote the Super Size Me song with my friend Morgan for the movie because he was my friend, and he said, I'm going to eat McDonald's for 28 days straight. And, you know, I thought he was out of his fucking mind. He looked disgusting. But I thought oh, that was fun. So we wrote a song, Super Size Me, or with our uh, buddy Toothpick, and he performed it, and it was in the movie. It was great. And, you know, there were all these guys. It was creative energy. But there was one guy in our crew 
that I made friends with was a guy named Jonathan Daniel. And Jonathan Daniel um, is now, you know, one of the most successful managers in the industry. Um, he runs Crush Management with his partner, Bob McClinn. But, you know, back then, man, they were a scrappy little organization. They were very scrappy. And I was pretty scrappy. And I met JD, I believe, uh, through uh, Clyde Lieberman at a meeting. And the second I met him, I was like, man, this guy's the shit. Because he had such, we had so much shared historical knowledge of records, man. We were both nerds. And it was amazing to meet a fellow nerd at this extent. Like we were really, we were just going deep on like, hey man, Stephen Bishop records. And hey, you know, the, we just loved it all. And we started having these coffees. We meet at Dean and DeLuca downtown. And he would give me these pep talks. And he was the only guy I ever met in the business. Like my manager's my guy, right? Like Brett's my guy. But Jonathan was the only guy I ever met outside of my manager who really understood what I was writing and what I was going for and could pick out the references. Because I was always trying to do this cool hodgepodge of shit that was like probably way too obtuse and way over under people's heads. So I just missed. But he got it. He knew what I was going for. And one day, it's 2004, and we, uh, he says, meet me at the Virgin Megastore in Union Square. I go and meet him. And he's like, look, man, he's like, you know, I really have like a scene beginning to happen, man. You know, I got this band Fallout Boy out of Chicago. And, you know, Pete Wentz is, is the kid. He's the bass player. And, man, they're on this little label fueled by ramen, this John Janik kid with, like, a dorm in Florida or something. And But this Pete Wentz kid is modeling his business in a way of what uh, Jay-Z and Dame are doing with Rockefeller. And he said, you know, there's all these bands under his tutelage that he's sort of developing, and it would be great to have a cat in the room who actually was a song guy who really could help craft it. And he, uh, I said, that's great, man. That's cool. And he said, so, you know, the first thing I'd like you to check out is a band called Gym Class Heroes. So I went to the Knitting Factory with JD. Um, Travis McCoy performed. I want to say there might have been 40 people in the crowd. And I fell in love. I thought this guy was everything I had ever wanted to be as an artist, right? He's like, he's good looking and he's so charismatic and he was lyrical and he was sharp. And I, I was just, I was, I was mesmerized. And so I went to Bob McClinton's apartment that night to beg for the record. And I sat with Bob watching a Steelers game, drinking beer. I hate fucking beer. And I'm sitting there like drinking with Bob because I'm doing whatever I can. And I just give him this impassioned pitch and they said, all right, you can do the record. I said, that's amazing, man. I said, so what's the budget? He said, yeah, man, it's, uh, you know, it's 28. I go, oh, that's crazy, 28 a track. That makes sense because I've been getting, you know, about 250 to 500,000 for all these flops that I've done. This is amazing, you know? He's like, no, no, it's 28,000 all in, and that includes mastering and mixing. And I was like, these guys are out of their fucking minds, you know? So I went back and I talked about it. I talked it over with Brett, my manager. And I said, look, man. I'm at the bottom of the fucking barrel cutting up ringtones for jam bands. Like, who the hell am I to turn down $28,000 to do this? My wife's pregnant. My wife gives birth. And three days later, we start as cruel as school children, the album. And out of that, I have my first hit. And that's when it begins. People say that happens a lot after they have a kid, that things really seem to come together. Is it? Is it... The work I think that changes when you have somebody else who you're responsible for, or is it zeitgeist? Is it? It's just like it, some weird. I think it's some weird like mystical energy that just like sort of that just flutters above. It's it it it's really hard to um, 
it's hard to label it, but I would say in my case, the day my kid was born, I really do feel like I became a different writer. There was a, a desperation, not in a negative way, but like uh, the, there was a passion to have my voice heard more than ever before. And, you know, uh, while we did the gym class record, you know, we moved in with Crush. We began, we all moved into a loft on 11th Street. And who's we? Uh, well, me, my manager, Brett. Got it. And I was writing a lot with uh, Dave Katz. I started working with him halfway through that record. The big, I worked on Cupid's Chokehold, and then Dave came on board for the rest of the record with me. And, you know, I started working with Dave Katz, uh, my, my favorite collaborator ever, incredible writer, and also the loveliest guy in the world. And, uh, you know, we started, we just, we, we split a lot with those guys, and truly, like, nothing will ever replicate that in my life, you know? Crush had the front probably half to two-thirds, then in the middle, Brad had his office, Ozone Management, which is a completely different entity. No, no relate, you know, no connection, you know, contractually or anything. They're just we're just homies. Across the hall was Alan Ferguson, who was directing all the videos for both Crush and Ozone. And then I had two rooms in the back. And what happened with it was it was just this incredible fertile breeding ground of just creativity all day long artists were coming in and out you know you'd have beyonce walking in one day and then you know you'd have you know the guy from third eye blind who you know stumbled into my room looked at my boys like girls plaque on their wall and was like boys like girls man we did shows with them they suck and walked out of the room <laughs> so that was my only exchange with the third eye blind guy um <laughs> But it was a lot of that energy, man. Courtney Love running around the halls. Like, just so many interesting figures in and out all day. And it fueled the creativity. It was incredible. And, you know, man, we're all competing, but also working together. And the best part is there were no strings. Like, it, it was magical, man. No contracts. We didn't do paper. Perfect example. Like, Pat Monahan became a friend of mine from Train. We started writing songs together. Pat was looking for new management. I introduced him to Crush. They connect. JD introduces me to, you know, the, you know, Travi or Brendan Urie and things like that. There's all this symbiotic stuff all day long that was born out of friendship more than anything else. It was just guys who, you know, people who really enjoyed each other's company, just hooking each other up and trying to make good art. I mean, it's your, it's, you're literally describing what we think of when we think of Andy Warhol and where you're... The factory. You know, you're, the it's a factory. And also the Brill Building. I mean, honestly, and the Brill it's, building, yeah, it's, exactly. it's discussing it with Carol. You know, I mean, you know, Carol used to say, I believe that the musicians all camped out in the diner below the Brill Building and you'd have all these incredible session cats downstairs and they just, you know, hey, you know, we need this, we need this. Hey, Tony Orlando was singing the demos back then. I mean, just incredible stuff. This was modeled after that and it was obviously mm -hmm. intentional. But, you know, the yeah, fruits of it... Yeah, but you can intend to, to do a lot of things. It doesn't mean that it, it actually functions and to function for really what looks like, you know, fif you know it, it 15, was, 20 years almost at this point. It is, was the personalities really fit. It was a lot of people, I think, who all came into it with, um, I would say, a shared love of song before anything else, more than the industry. I think we're all people who never really loved the industry. We all sort of painted ourselves outside of it, and I think that comes from years of futility, right? Years of when it's not working out, you the calluses yeah. grow to such an extent, you're like, fuck this business, fuck this business. We're anarchists. Well, we're not really anarchists, but truthfully, we were guys who just truly believed in like the the songs that we were crafting and the acts and all that stuff. So, had you had had that first album been a success? Yeah. 
or the second or third or any of those yeah. projects that you were developing, had yeah. any of those worked? When Jonathan says to you, you know, when you go see um, Gym Class Heroes, you're not taking that. You, if any of those things were question. successful, you are not taking that, and you do not go down this this string of gym class heroes. You would not have done Cobra Starship. You would not have done Boys Like Girls. You would not have done Metro Station. You wouldn't have done any of those. Coheed, none of them. You wouldn't have done any of those things had any of those other things been successful, and you would have gone down a whole other path. But because you had this dearth of work it was it was we were you were then set to do something like you had to prove a point yes and it was the right it was it couldn't that that's a great point and honestly i don't really think about it but now you're freaking me out now i'm just thinking what what might have been you understand like some of the records that flopped were gut-wrenching man i mean i i worked with guys from my high school who had grown up with dan 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 woods and aaron aceta who were in a band called jay bender we put together they were in a band a different band and we pared it down gave it a new name and we wrote some songs together and they got signed by david Kahn. uh no sorry mitchell cohen at columbia and you know man this dan was one of my closest friends in high school and he ended up, you know, he's he's in film and television. Aaron ended up writing Best Day of My Life for the American Authors with Shep Goodman, mm. you know. But the truth of the matter is these guys, like, these are my boys from high school. Imagine having to tell them, hey, man, your record shelved. Yeah, they're not putting it out. That's fun. You and know? you signed to, like, that. I was going to say earlier, because you've given some good advice for, for new writers, and, and I think most of, most of us who got record deals, that was the goal. And none of us thought about the work that it took afterwards. If we did, we would have had someone else produce our first albums. If we did, we would have gone and hustled that much harder and assumed that the label wasn't doing the work. We would have done all the things to get to the next goal, which is actually all the things that happen after the record deal. But instead, when you, the goal becomes the record deal, so many people get there, they, they sort of ring the bell, and then they look back and they're like, oh, sh- Shit, that was my opportunity. I had to like I had a machine that was waiting to work, but the machine doesn't work for you until you sort of work for it, and and that takes years of experience. Hundred percent. Dave Katz is all you know older than I am, and Dave, so he was always sort of like a big brotherly figure. Dave Katz wrote Candy for Mandy Moore, and he always told me a story when we started writing together that he's sitting in uh, he's sitting in Washington Square Park. He's had a couple drinks, which is very Dave Katz, <laughs> and he's sitting there. And a truck pulls up and watching Square Park and it's a Sony or Epic Records uh, street team. And they run out literally like haphazardly flinging postcards everywhere that say Mandy is candy. And that was the moment he realized, oh, shit, I'm finally on something that has a trajectory that's going up. It's like we get so used to these things. Like you said, man, back then the record deal was all any kid wished for. It's like, you know, you grow up, you read Spin, you read Rolling Stone, and all you care about is, man, like making the record and getting the record deal. But then <laughs> lower down the list is actually promotion and actually the record being released and touring and all those other things. You just It's the magic of the studio and, man, a record deal and all this shit that you grow up in. And unfortunately, that's, only, that's the smallest part of it, man. The rest of the hustle goes so much deeper. Well, you know, working on albums that start to sell really well, yeah. you know, and and even you know, working on some of these songs that that start to get heard, yeah, that's those 
you then kind of really arrive, you know, yeah. and maybe even see some residuals where it wasn't, you know, just upfront cash. You've now seen some money on the back end. But even some of it is like getting like maybe things that don't matter but kind of matter like a BMI pop award or something yeah. where you show up and you're like, oh, my God, I'm in a room with that guy and that guy and that woman and that woman and holy shit, this is a room of legends. And you're like, oh, my God, this is this is the other side of the curtain. There comes a moment when you wake up and you realize you're actually in it. You know what I mean? And for a while, you you fake it. You fake it. And, you know, the fake it to make it thing is so real in music, obviously. Like, it's one of these jobs, just like a music manager, by the way, who are, you know, most managers suck, as we know. And the truth is, like, why? Because there's no bar of entry. You can literally wake up one day at 18 and say, I'm a music manager. And no, there's no ID. You don't get proofed. You're, you know, you're a music manager. Okay, yeah. great. Well, it's the same with being a songwriter producer, right, man? I mean, I've met one million writer producers in my life. But, you know, the truth is, to actually that moment where it really becomes real, where it transcends, where you're like, wow, I'm actually in the room with these people is the heaviest thing. I agree with that. I, I went, I want to say it was a Songwriters Hall of Fame event maybe uh, many, many years ago. And I went to, I think Train was doing something or whatever, but I was walking around the room and people were like shaking my hand and people kind of, some people knew who I was and it was the most powerful feeling I'd ever had. I was like, holy shit, I'm not a joke. Yeah. This is like actually real. I'm actually, you know, uh, I've been blessed to some extent to um, by some of the some of the OGs. It was it was so powerful, man. But a lot of people who experience that have severe imposter syndrome, and it sounds like you have an element of it, and yet you also recognize that it's real. Do you currently have imposter syndrome? Knowing, looking back at your career, or or do you look at it as like, no, that was the moment you arrived, and you were no longer an imposter. That was the moment I arrived. You know, I definitely, uh, I think, as sort of what I was alluding to earlier is like, you know, one hit, I felt like an imposter. Two hits, the second hit was Great Escape by Boys Like Girls, and. When that hit, I immediately thought, okay, I'm, I'm super legit for a second of my life. Like, they can't take that away from me. And with that, it's a newborn confidence, man, because once you're actually in it and it, you've, um, you've been verified, so to speak, you know, musically, it's, uh, it's the most powerful shit. You just like, you know, you just, it takes away a lot of those insecurities. Like, the monkey really does get off your back for a second. Hearing your songs on the radio is sort of like the other thing that you know we didn't really talk about, but it's like it it's the part of music that is um you know is is really what we're aiming for is to hear your songs in public or hear other people playing your song where Dude. you're not constantly being like, "Please check out my music, please play my like check out this artist I'm working out with or working with or like you don't have to when when someone else is playing it by choice. It's the greatest feeling is, in the world. And you kind of go through a string of that. Um, when when was that first moment? Wow. Um, well, uh, you know, there's a bunch of them. I mean, you know, New York was a great radio town with Z100. So, you know, all those songs, those things you alluded to, man. I mean, you know, specifically Metro Station and Boys Like Girls, mm. a bunch of those singles and. Um, Jim Class Heroes and We the Kings, Chuck Yes, Julia. I mean, they used to bang those songs on Z100. So I'd be in so many different scenarios driving, you know, here or there, and, you know, it, it would come on. And then, 
You know, uh, the moment when it really uh, gets nutty is when, you know, there, when TRL was still a thing. Like, having videos on TRL, man, was the... That was the craziest experience in the world where you'd go down to Times Square if you were lucky to tag along with the act who, you know, was going on. And people are like, you know, 10,000 screaming kids in the street screaming, you know, as your song hits number one on TRL or whatever that, you know, I, I fear for this generation of kids because they're not getting the radio experience to the same extent. Mm-hmm. And they're not getting the certainly not getting the music video experience to the same extent. Uh, you know, when everything's online and it's completely different, you're missing sort of those subcultures like in person, those events, like that that shared experience of being in a car and the radio coming on. With that, it's magical, man. The first yeah. time you hear your song, it's magical. It's weird. Radio is. I'm everyone's fearful. Radio will disappear. Um, but I do think people do crave that shared experience and. I'd like to maybe this is rose-colored glasses, yeah. but I I do feel like there there is a need for that and a want for that, and I think if you if you still drive in a car, yeah. then you still put on the radio as often as you're putting on a playlist. When you're at an office or you're doing other thing, you know, maybe Let, something different. Let's but. hope. Let's hope, man. Honestly, radio is still king to me. Radio was everything I believed in because I was completely raised on it. So. You go through, uh, kind of, you know, you stay in this. Uh, you're you now get to this upper echelon of writers, right? Yeah. And and all these projects are doing really well. Yeah. Like you know enough so that your kids taken care of. You're doing a lot of projects. You're making a living. You're you're producing and writing on a lot of big yeah. albums. Um, even if the song goes platinum or goes gold, mm-hmm. and even if a song does pretty well at radio, it's still this one step away. You know, there's a big difference. I remember someone saying, like, you don't want the number 11 song. You don't want the number six song. You don't want the number four song. You don't want the number two song. Because all those things just miss out on the next level of bonuses. 100%. And they all miss out on... on and and it, it doesn't just represent the financial bonus, but those numbers really do reflect when radio stations are willing to put a little more oomph behind a song. Sure. So it maybe it has... That's why a lot of songs die at, at 15. Mm-hmm. You know? It's because true. they didn't quite get to that top 15. Mm-hmm. You know? And they didn't get to the top 10, top 5. Mm-hmm. Top, and so you end up with... You know, a few of these songs get real close, but for a while, it's still this, you know, multiple years of really, like, songs we know, songs that did well, but they didn't quite get to where your songs later end up going. Do you, do you have a new baseline of success where you started thinking, okay, well, if a song doesn't chart, or go gold, or go platinum, or get a BMI award. Like, that's not successful. Did you, what was, before, your definition of success was, if I can make this jam band ringtone into <laughs> to 30 different ringtones. Let me tell you something, quite you a know? skill. And so then you change your, your, you move your bar. And where, I don't once know, you have the... I don't know, man. Honestly, at the end of the day, I... Uh, I really like, uh, it was always song song first in terms of if I could walk away from the song and really stand by it in such a weird emotional way that it resonated, that sort of meant the world to me, man. It was like at the end of the day, I had mid-charters and I had a bunch of top tens and blah, blah during that time. But you know what? Truthfully, it's like there's some songs in that era that, 
didn't do anything relatively and they're my favorites yeah. and those are the ones like i mean i had a song with a band called the academy is a song called um about a girl and i think that might be my favorite song of that era and you know it was a big trl video and you know they played it on mtv new years but you know live but you know what it didn't even get a look at radio, man. They didn't even go for it. But I was okay because I thought, man, this song is just badass. When I bump it, it moves me. It's like this is the kind of song I, as a little kid, I would have wished that I could write. Yeah. So I was always okay with that. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I know this is jumping forward again a bit, but... To me, one of the biggest songs you have, and uh, Joe and I were talking about catalogs earlier, mm-hmm. and the songs that get the most licenses are worth more than the songs that chart the highest. Definitely. Sometimes they're the same, but you can have a number one song that does not generate nearly as much as that song that you know doesn't chart but gets licensed all the time. And and some classic songs, sure, you know, like "Dream On" for Aerosmith is was got to number seventeen. Yep. Like that is not a hit, but yet it's a huge hit. It's like mm-hmm. certain songs get licensed; they just get to a certain thing, and they're everywhere. You cannot still they were were. Six years removed from it, you cannot go anywhere without hearing hand clap. Well, you know, I'll tell you how. By Fitz and the Tantrums. That's a massive, massive song. It's a big song. song. Here's how we arrive at hand clap, which is pretty funny because this is, this is, um, there are two or three things I want to say about hand clap. Um, I met Fitz a couple times at parties when I first moved out to LA. So I moved here in 2012, uh, 2011, late 2011. And I met Fitz a couple times, and I was a huge Fitz and the Tantrums fan, right? Like, I was way into the the early stuff. Like, I was into Money Grabber and, like, you know, Break the Chains, and break, you know, like, whatever, you know, the, the real deep, deeper soul stuff. And then, you know, it gets a little more 80s doubt, which I love. And I thought, man, this guy is just, he's amazing. I met him a couple times. There was a 0% chance I was going to get on a Fitz and the Tantrums record. And I say that because... I think it's so imperative to know where you are at that moment in the business in terms of what you're writing. You know, at that when I first met Fitz, I was coming off of Carmen's Acapella and Daughtry's Waiting for Superman. And they're both relative hits, you know? Certainly Waiting for Superman did very well. But, you know, it, it, he was writing with Sia, man. You know, mm-hmm. and he's running with Dave Dave Bassett, who was like coming off a fight song and L King, 
And I wasn't as sexy a brand. And I knew that, okay, he's probably, I have no chance of accessing fits. Now, also during that time, I went really cold as a writer. I took a gig, I took a, I took a sidebar and I went to, uh, uh, I went to New York and I um, produced the music on the second season of Smash, and which was just brutal. And I did the show, a TV thing, and I did that because my parents were both sick, and it gave me. It was basically paid trips to go back every few weeks to go check in on my folks. Um, when I did that, I took my eyes off the prize a little bit. Dave Katz and I have been writing the same pop punk song for many years. We segued, you know, into Train. I really wanted to get into Hot AC because I realized that Hot AC songs just live longer. I thought the writing was just maybe a little broader and I liked what that represented. And, you know, um, so for a while we did Train and Uncle Cracker and, you know, a lot of these bands, Blues Travelers, Sugar Ray, whatever. And we had a great time, great experiences. But even then, like, I just began to feel like I was losing my thing. And during that time, I end up at dinner one night with um, uh, one of my oldest friends is uh, an actor named Jeremy Piven and Chicago. And Piven and I go to dinner in the city, brings me out with him. I was, I was like a perennial plus one with Piven and Cusack when I was very young. So <laughs> these guys used to <laughs> let so me crazy. tag along. So yeah. I've had right. just years of stories of these guys who were so kind to let me sort of be the entourage to the entourage. And I... Once again, I learned how the people operate and how the world works in a different way that I had viewed it. And Jeremy brought me out to dinner with Steve Nash, who's now the coach of the Brooklyn Nets, but back then was finishing up a Hall of Fame basketball career. And we went to uh, get a burger in the city. And as we were talking about process, and a lovely guy, by the way, lovely guy, and really artistic and interesting. And you know, he's talking about sports and he's he's talking about how in sports, at some point in his third year in the NBA, his numbers were plummeting. He went to see a sports psychologist. Sports psychologist says to him, hey man, you know, the reason you're doing this is because you've been to all these markets so many times already. The luster is gone. The novelty of I'm, I made it is over. Now you're like, actually, it's a grind and it sucks because it, it's, it's all encompassing. You're away from home for months at a time and you're in like all these tertiary markets, like, you know, eating shitty food, you know? And he, uh, so the, the guy prescribed him sort of this, this, this regiment of, um, yoga, Pilates, uh, swimming, uh, meditation, you know, a Tai Chi, I believe. And he said, you're never going to take a day off during the season from this point forward. Well, what happens is fast forward, he follows this, and suddenly his career goes to new heights. And from that point on, he then maintains that level for the next 15 years until he retires, Hall of Fame player. That night when I leave, I'm walking back through Washington Square, mm-hmm. and we're at Mineta Tavern. So I'm walking back through Washington Square to my apartment, and it hits me. I still own my place in the city, and it hits me. I'm like, man, why can't I apply this to songs? Because for a long time, I realized when, you know, at the end of the pop punk thing and when we're doing all these other bands, truthfully, man, we were beginning to live higher on the hog, man. You know what I mean? We, you know, f- five days a week of writing became three days of writing, and, you know, you just start to, like, enjoy it more. You're living life, you know? And I realized that in the process of doing that and then taking on this TV show, I was, I had lost my voice. I didn't know who I was anymore. And I didn't really, like, I didn't really feel like I had a defined thing anymore where at once I really felt very confident in it. And it's back to imposter syndrome, right? So 
I uh, decided, what if I apply that to writing? So I went uh, to the beach, and every single day in the summer, I wrote seven days a week. And from that point on, I realized, all right, well, summers are a great time to stock up for the year. So you did it by yourself? You were just writing Every lyric? day, wake up, and it would start with, I would start with... Um, a lyric sheet that was driven by either first, you know, I give myself assignments, man. Today you have to start the day, and I, like, I'm I'm up at six, man. So like, ten titles today, and not like hack titles. Like they got to be really sharp, like high concept focused ideas, you know. Next day, a verse and a pre. Next day, a chorus. Just things constantly doing. If I didn't hear anything, narrative poetry, man. I like really flow and write something that's sort of like beat with like lots of sort of internal rhymes and stuff, just to keep my craft tight. And I started doing that, and I've never stopped since. And the way I work it is, since my my um my skill sets tend to be when I'm in a uh, when I'm in a studio with a band right or with an artist one-on-one like i i do better with artists i don't write pitch stuff as much because i was never really great at it I, I i do my best stuff sort of being the appendage in the room who's you know adding some days doing a lot of heavy lifting and other days you know shaping or whatever and what i realized was the more i did that the sharper i was in every room i got to so i spent a summer just completely getting my skills together i went back to la the first session back was fitz and I'd met him because we have a, a holiday band called Band of Merrymakers. That was me and Kevin Griffin and Mark McGrath. And we'd started this thing, um, kicking some money to uh, uh, musicians on call and music cares. And it was just like this fun little idea we had. And Fitz sang on the song. And I finally got a session with him through it. And as I'm prepping for the session, I keep hearing this thing in my head. I can make your hands clap. I can make your hands clap, right? And I didn't know what it was. I just felt like, this is cool, you know? And uh, back then, I actually had it as, I can make your hand clap, because I like the hand clap singular. And it's Craig Kalman, chairman of Atlantic, of all people, who said, this is the hit, but it has to be hands clap. A hand doesn't clap, a hands clap. Yeah. And I was pissed off about it. I was like, Fitz, what does he know? Well, he was right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I came in the room, and I just started spitting this verse to him, you know? And I had the whole verse. I sort of like that front shape of the, you know, somebody say, you're so close, you've been sitting there. And it has all this internal shit that I love doing. And he's sitting there wide-eyed. And we've just sort of met, like we're just getting to know each other. And here's this odd guy running in a room like he's literally snorted all of Bolivia. And he's like shouting, somebody say, you're so and I'm acting it out in this whole shit. And he looks at me and he just goes, and I said, I can make your hands clap. And he goes, and I thought, what the fuck is that? I was like, why'd you just do that five clap thing? That's weird, man. I'm like, I'm more of like a pop, pop. I'm a disco guy, right? Yeah. Everything's two claps. He's doing this five clap. And we do it back and forth. And it's like monkey see, monkey do back and forth. And you realize, man, these are like two 40-something-year-old guys who are like, oh, we get paid for this? This is amazing. So we're writing this thing. Fitz sits down at the keyboard. And I mean, Fitz is a talented dude, man. And he sits down and he immediately just creates this earworm. My uh, my uh, uh, engineer and programmer at the time, who's also a great writer, a guy named Grant Michaels, uh, I had tasked him with coming up with a sound that resembled a bagpipe, 
sort of like the house of pain jump around thing because every time I hear jump around, it doesn't matter whatever the setting is. It just sort of, it works in any room. So I thought maybe something like that could be cool with like to manipulate. And Grant found this badass sound. Grant found this, like that, that weird distorted blown out horn thing. Fitz sits down and literally five seconds. Yeah. So mask guy's badass. And he put the track together and we finished this thing. And you know, I thought it was dope. He thought it was dope. But then we got to the end of it. I said, that's great, man. So you'll track it with the band and you're going to take it to Motown, right? So it's going to be like, you know, yeah. snares on the core notes and batu, 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 and like, you know, baby love, kind of like yeah. a real Motown thing. And he looks at me like, no, this is it. And he's like, no, no, we're done. And I was like, no, 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 come on, man. Like band, 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 quarter note snares, man. It'll be dope, man. Like, you know, Supremes. He's looking at me like, I'm an idiot. He's like, no, no, this is it, man. Electropop. And we really vibed on all these shared influences. And Electro was early 80s Electro, like, you know, Freeze and John Rocka and all those kind of African Bombada records and all that stuff. So we, we did have a, a shared sort of perspective on it, but I didn't hear it going there. So every step of the way, I, he'd send this thing to me. And I was like, man, this song is going to brick so hard. And I'm going to be the guy who killed his career. Mm -hmm. I'm literally going to be the career killer. And I would say there are a couple of people, Evan Tabenfeld, Jonathan Daniel, a couple of these guys I played it for early on, my closest friends who were like, this is a fucking hit. And I was like, no way. And it's funny because, <laughs> like you said, it's not that it was a pop hit. It wasn't a pop hit at all. When like number 30 or something, it was a hot AC hit, an alternative hit. But the sinks were just control. the most disgusting. There was like 250 sinks. So it was like, it was just, it was, it was, it was so enormous yeah. on a global level. And then also overseas, it was a billion streams just in Asia. So it was such a big um, foreign record more than anything else that it just, it's, it's amazing. I mean, I watched the Olympics this year. I think I heard it 35 times. I mean, every yeah. time I turn on some event, it's like, oh, it's, what's the fat guys with the brooms doing that thing? What is that thing? You know, the curling? <laughs> curling yeah. The curling guys, the drunken guys are out there curling their faces. Off. I love those guys. And hand claps blaring. I'm like, yeah, soundtrack of curling, man. I love this. So. Fitz is a you know, uh, former guest of the podcast. It, he's a, such a chameleon. At, at, you know, and, and he's also... He, he understands licensing in a way that most people don't and he goes he he understands his audience he really genuinely is connected to his I, brand as well as any artist i adore him like he's one of my closest friends and what i would tell you about fitz that i would say the same thing about there's a bunch of peers that you know i've known for a long time who do a similar thing and it's i'd say fitz i'd say pat monahan I'd say Rivers Cuomo. Like, think about these guys is, man, we're all around the same age, and they want it so bad. And when you work with them, they're perfectionists, and they never stop writing. The output yeah. is unbelievable, and it's humbling because, truthfully, I mean, I think Rivers writes three songs a day. I mean, yeah. he wants it so bad, and that's, the you know, that you can't coach that. But for a guy like me who's on the outside who's just a fan who they let in the room – I I find it incredibly inspiring. That's if such these guys... bullshit, bro. You just said that you're writing seven days a week now for the last seven years. Like it's not true. You have the same drive. Oh no, I'm saying it's no, it's no, I'm saying not. And you, oh no, I'm they the same invite guy. you in the room. Because oh no, you but I'm the, that guy. But no, no, listen, listen. I get that. I'm saying that at the end of the day, though, 
I find those guys incredibly inspiring because these are guys who at this point have made enough cash where they could sit back and just take privates and do their shows and not worry about this. But they still are so aggressive in their output and how they do it that it fuels me to every day just get better and just keep going myself. You know? I think I think the two most valuable things in the music industry are people who can break artists and people who can um, reinvigorate somebody's career. And Panic was at a point where they hadn't had a, a hit in a long time, not the way that their first yep. hit was. Yep. So my assumption is that the expectations were about the same as every other song, even if you really liked High Hopes. And I know that there are a lot of... there's a, High Hopes has its own journey that's like... It's an incredible like journey. An incredible journey. But it goes so far past, you know, other songs. Like, it's, yeah. it's such a big, big, big song. Yeah. Um, how does that feel at that point in your career to, to then ring a bell at that level? Greatest moment of my life, man. You know really? I mean? Yeah, that was it. I mean, the thing about High Hopes is um, I'm very proud of High Hopes on so many levels. You know, I, uh, uh, everybody involved in the song is pretty rad. Brendan Urie is incredible. But what I did on the song, I really felt was, uh, was a testament to the years I put into this business. And this is what I mean by it. You know, as you know, High Hopes, for the or for those who don't know, High Hopes, I think, was born. The chorus was born in a hot tub at a writing camp in Colorado. Yeah, the BMI writing camp. The BMI writing camp, I want to say like 2016. And it was Ilse Juber. It was um, Cut Cook Classics. Uh, it was um, Taylor Parks. Taylor Parks. And it was Jonas Jabor, yeah. you know? Yeah. And these guys killed it. So they they had this this incredible chorus and this track, which I, I think was Jonas and you know Will. Yeah. But the track was fierce. And what happened was I'd done uh, four four songs with Brendan and Jake Sinclair on uh, Death of a Bachelor, and then I did a ton of prep work going into the next record. Man, I wrote my face off with all sorts of ideas. So if I got in a room with these guys, I'd be prepped. Same thing. Like every day, that was my assignment ideas to bring into Brendan and Jake and all these guys, you know? And what happened was we started writing together and the first thing was, uh, Hey, look, Ma made it. And I heard that and I lost my shit. Cause I was like, this song is fierce. This is something I could mess with. You know, I love that song. And I felt like it was really, the whole thing was turning a really interesting corner because, you know, a lot, the bulk of those tracks were born from sample tracks that different guys had like sort of chopped up interesting samples. So the sonic beds were really inspiring to write over. And it took me back yeah. to, once again to the essence of when I'm starting out with an SP12 yeah. drum machine and I'm looping up records. And it's back to writing over two bar loops and things like that. One bar static loops where you just have to really find that melody. And so... As a task, I've, I don't ever remember being more inspired in my life. We wrote eight or nine songs in a row, and they were all making the cut. But High Hopes was the one where I had heard this chorus. JD and um, Evan had played it for me, and I literally was like that horse last weekend at the Kentucky Derby who's just <laughs> sitting in there trying to break out of the stall to like write that song. And 
I never got the opportunity and it was just sitting and I don't know, I've always equated in my head that maybe other people took a stab at writing the verses on that song in my head and maybe it's like this, the, the guitar yeah. solo in Peg by Steely Dan, Jay Graydon, but seven other guys did that solo before Jay Graydon nailed it. I always felt like maybe that's what happened. I don't know because it like the song was sitting. Then the those guys all, the team of those guys, Brendan and JD and Jake and whoever else, grabbed a pre-chorus from another existing Panic demo that had been thrown out and suddenly you had like a pre-chorus slash bridge, but there were no verses. And this was to me 30 years of writing where I had to connect yeah. a chorus to this bridge and create a narrative and construct it and write it. And I sat on my porch and I waited and waited. And finally I got this call that's like, hey, the album's like mastering in a week, man. We might want to try that idea. We might want to finish it. Do you have anything? And I put on headphones and I just started scatting ideas in 20 minutes I sort of knew knew how I heard it, and I heard a verse, a first verse, and obviously, you know, when I write these things, you know, I'm, uh, I'm from my end of it, the the part that I'm bringing, sure, I want to like, I want to be about Brendan's journey, something that he'll connect to, but at the same time, I'm also writing stuff that I connect to because it's it's my own path, and so I sort of framed it as a conversation with my my mom who had passed in the first verse, and a second um, the second verse is a conversation between me and my daughter and just sort of passing the generational torch. And I just spewed like all the stuff I'd gone through. I just lost both parents. I'm like, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a, like a weird place and I'm very like, I felt like I was in a very nostalgic place and I just sort of, I just, I hammered it out. And I went and then Brendan took it, ran with it, flipped a few things and suddenly we had a song and it changed my life. And I would say w w why I'm so emotionally invested in that song is I had... It literally was like akin to any sporting event in history. The clock was ticking, and I really had a big-ass job on that song to write some verses and really make it work as an idea, and I thought I killed it. And that's the one I'm obviously, you know, it. it uh, I hear it everywhere still, and I would say I still, like, I get chills. There's, like, that visceral response every time I hear it because I know what went into it. I know how bad I just wanted a shot at mm. that song. Those guys wrote the greatest chorus ever. You know what I mean? Like Jake and, and, and Brendan and um, Jenny Owens Young, I think did that. And maybe Lolo did that, um, that, that bridge with all those cool chords. Like that was so dope. Mama said, don't give yeah. like it's so sophisticated and cool. I just wanted to be part of it and to bring my shit. And I felt like I did it. We're going to go to the next segment, five for five. I'm going to list five things. Tell me the first thing that comes off the top of your head. We're going to start with, we're going to start with the East Coast. The motherland. We're going to go with your daughter. My life. Your wife. My life. Your father. Miss him. Your mom. The greatest. Well, thank you for doing this podcast. Um, you know, it's 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 nice because I, I feel like there's there are people who are in this business for all kinds of reasons. But they're the ones that are that are I, I, I'm gonna say still around, the ones like you were saying, the gen 
uh, other gens that are already thinning out in the business. The reality biters. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's it's the people who genuinely love it, appreciate it. It's the people who did have to struggle. It isn't, you know, the people who really succeed early on, a lot of them don't know what to do with that success and they don't really understand how fortunate that may be and they may blow it really early or all the other things. But the guy who had to edit ringtones and then ends up completely you know, true. And twenty completely years true. twenty years later has a song that feels like is the biggest success for, for him is the guy that that couldn't be more excited to walk into a room. And then everyone else in the room is fucking excited to be with them because there's this feeling of it reminds you of how fortunate we are to be here. And and you know, I, I just am I'm happy that you're sticking with it. I'm happy you're writing books. I'm happy you're writing music because it's the this is all for fun. Ross, I gotta if you're tell at you, this point. I gotta tell you that. You know? I, you know, it's never once been lost on me how incredibly uh wonderful the journey has been. Every step of it. And you know, I don't have a lot of hobbies, man. I uh I like music. I like documentaries on cults, Melina cults. Um, but outside of that, you know, man, I don't, this is, this is everything to me every day of the week. It's what I believe in. It's a religion. It's like song is everything. It doesn't matter. You know, man, I wake up, I check out everything going on. Even if I don't understand the genre, even if somebody says to me, Oh, it's like hype hyper pop or whatever the fuck yeah, it is right. and i'm like all right i'm gonna figure this out yeah. i want to know what it is i might not write it but i want to know why people like stuff i want to know why songs work i want to connect to it i want to i want to know who the baddest young cat is and i want to get in a room with them yeah. and see what they do because i've worked with all the greats i was blessed man i've worked with the greats i've worked with the old school cats and i've learned so much from them but i want to learn from the kids so i want to be down with like the baddest 25 year old melodic writer get in a room and learn and it's like if if you have that thirst for knowledge and this is like there's no plan b this is the only thing that speaks to you on that level that's all you can do hey there you go thank you uh seriously thank you guys it means the world to me to have it thank you so much it's awesome this episode is produced by joe london hypnosis mega house management and myself Shout out Paige McDonald, Kelly Fox, Casey Robinson, David Silberstein, Tim Kirch, and Zach Weinstein. See you all next week. I'm Ross Golan, signing off. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.